remember that we're in this section of Psalms that are really personal in nature. They're, they're private devotional Psalms. So you see the personal pronouns I and me over and over again in these Psalms. They, they provide for us some guidance or a pattern that we can model our own private or personal prayer time after. In Psalm 141, David is praying that God would keep him from sin and from sinners. The expectation here is that as God leads him to do what is right, as God leads him to obey, that that there is to be fallout from that. And, And frankly, sometimes that's the case. There are times when choosing to be obedient to God puts you in conflict with the world around you, and there there are dire consequences for your faithfulness to God. This has always been the case. This is not just a New Testament phenomenon. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But that reality and principle existed even before the incarnation of God's only Son in Jesus Christ. It has always been the case that to be steadfast in our obedience to God will bear earthly, in an earthly sense, some consequences that may not be all that present, uh, all that pleasant. David says, help me to do what is right in spite of what the consequences of doing what is right may look like for me. And so he, he, he provides us again with some direction in praying um, about sin in our life. In fact, we, if we could, we could couple this with uh, the direction that Jesus gave us in the sermon text from a couple of Sunday mornings ago, he talks about fighting against sin. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, tear them off, gouge them out, take radical measures to purge your life uh, from sin, to, to do away with sin. There's almost an aversion to now in some precincts a, 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 an approach to preaching that calls people away from specific sin. We always need to be careful that we are examining ourselves constantly to see, yes, that we're in the faith, but in addition to that, to see that we're walking worthy of our calling, examining ourselves to to purge ourselves of sin. The, The presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit of God is pleased to dwell among the holiness of God's people. That's just a reality. That's true corporately. That's why holiness is important to the church. And we give example after example of how that works itself out. A sin within one member of the church's life will have bearing on the health of the whole church. Think of Achan and Joshua 7 and those uh, forbidden things buried in the depth of his tent. Sin in your life, you've experienced this. There there is a, a harmony with God. There is a sense of nearness to God. There is a sensitivity to the Spirit of God when you are walking faithfully with Him that you simply do not enjoy during seasons of your life when you give yourself over to sin. I don't know how to best describe that or define that or even quantify that, but you have experienced this reality in your life. The longer sin stays in your life, the more calloused you become to that sin, and the more sin stays in your life, the more calloused you become to sin in general. So there needs to be this 
this constant self-evaluation that we're purging ourselves of sin, examining ourselves, even evaluating our convictions against what the Bible teaches. We're not always clear or correct when it comes to what is right and what is wrong, and, and those personal standards need to be measured against the standard of the Scripture. David helps us with uh, such an approach to prayer in Psalm 141. Verse 1 reads, Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. Don't let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Don't let me feast on their delicacies. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It's all for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words for their pleasing. As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes look to you, Lord God. I seek refuge in you. Don't let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. There are really four specific prayer requests that David offers in our psalm. But he sort of sets the tone for this prayer in verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. The initial request, the foundational request of everything that David asked of God in this prayer is that God would write his heart even as he begins to pray. That's not a bad way to pray. God, receive my prayers as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Incense was used in the ceremonial process as a symbol for prayer. It would be received by God as a pleasing aroma, as the description that's offered for the, the presence of incense within the sacrificial system. In other words, receive me gladly, God, for the petition that I bring before you. He's, he's almost asking access as he enters into the presence of God in prayer. The series of requests that David makes begin in verse number 3. He says initially, this is his prayer, praying that God would, again, in general, guard him against error or against the consequences of choosing to do what is right. He says, first, guard my mouth. Now, that's a good way to begin to pray. It, it, it is always telling um, of a man's heart the way he speaks with his, with his mouth. In verse 3, David says, Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. I mentioned to you a moment ago that I have the ability to move um, in a covert manner here, not yet identified as the preacher in town. And I've had a refresher course in course language over the past few weeks, um, just in different places and around different groups of people and those sorts of things. I. I had, I had been in my previous uh, church for about a year, and our, our local football team was playing a, a playoff game over in the Delta. 
And it was one of those, you've experienced these in the fall of the year. It was one of those days that was beautiful. And when the sun set and the water was coming across that Mississippi River, it was so cold, the wind would cut you to the bone. So everyone was dragging out every article of clothing they had in every vehicle that was parked in the parking lot that night and trying to cover up as best they could and had a very thin jacket on. But there happened to be a ski mask available to me. And so I gladly took the ski mask, which was not out of place. I know you think, well, I probably looked like a stalker or something on the sidelines, but really I, I didn't. It was very cold, and I had very, not enough clothing for that night. And I learned so much about the people of our area, uh, just spending an evening among them with a ski mask. Um, it, 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 is, it is telling of, of the condition of a man's heart the way he speaks with his mouth, isn't it? David wisely prays, Lord, guard my mouth. this this, This can be about coarse language. I think superficially it is about coarse language. I don't understand um, the use of coarse language. And I just want to say to people sometimes, "You, you sound really dumb when you talk that way. But, of course, that's not appropriate. And so I have to pray as David prays, Lord, set up a guard over my mouth. Um, You you can change the way that you speak, by the way, just on that, because here's the excuse that I always hear. He doesn't even realize he's talking that way. Yeah, yeah, yes, he does. There's a direct connection between your brain and your mouth. It's always informed of what's about to come out. You can can apprehend that. You can control that. You, you, You may have far less control over your tone or, or the effect with which you speak than you do the actual words that you speak, but you can control it. I, I was not raised, again, in a Christian context, and foul language was very much a part of conversation, especially amongst friends as a teenage boy. But I, I, God is my witness. I could take you to the place where I was in the summer of 2002 where I spoke the last cuss word that ever came out of my mouth. I can tell you what all the circumstances were leading up to that. I'm just, I say that to say, you don't have to speak that way. And if you do, or when you do, you, you are discrediting yourself in, in ways that are much, much, a, a much bigger deal than what you may realize if, if it's your choice to use that kind of language. No one is going to hear a good gospel witness from a foul mouth. They're just not. They're just not going to hear it well. So superficially, that application is, is here in our passage. But there's more than that. In the context of Psalm 141, David seems to be tempted to speak in a way that would be pleasant to those who may oppose him if he speaks as he should. In other words, if he says what he ought to say, when he ought to say it, there will be people who don't like it. The reverse of that is saying what they want to hear when they want to hear it so that everything goes smoothly. Now, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace, as Solomon said. There's a time for speech and there's a time for silence. David's not talking about confusing those two. We have a real problem with that in our culture. Social media has convinced us all that our opinion matters on virtually everything, and I hate to tell you, but that's just not the case. Some opinions just don't matter, and not every opinion needs to be spoken. Some of those opinions just need to be kept to ourselves, and I'm 
A number one. Um, I, that applies to me directly. Here, we're, we're reminded that it's not, it's not just what we say in terms of the purity of our speech, but when we say it, or even the tone with which we say it. Miss Brandy says that I sound mean. I work really hard publicly to not sound mean. So what, what I call that at home is lazy mouth. So, you know, you, you just get lazy and you say things in a certain way that you don't intend to sound. You husbands can bear witness with this. You don't mean anything ugly by what you say. It's just the way we talk. And we're the only people in the house that get charged with needing to change the way we talk. But there are times when it's a valid claim. Y'all with me, men? Amen. <laughs> I, my excuse for all these years has been, well, they're, they're boys. They need to, that's how their coaches are going to talk to them. That's how their boss is going to talk to them. They need to learn how to deal with that. But with the introduction of this little girl, my excuses are out the window. It doesn't only matter what we say in terms of the terminology or the vocabulary that we use. It, it matters even the way we say the things that we say. Now, some of you men are not happy with me, and frankly, I'm not happy with the principle either, but it is what it is, isn't it? Here, if we're personalizing this principle, this idea of guarding our mouth, and I've given you in the outline some questions to consider, we have to first ask, are the things that I say pleasing to the Lord? And then secondly, we have to ask, is, is the way I say what I'm saying pleasing to the Lord? David says, guard my mouth. If you, if you can work on the business of guarding your mouth, you'll have gone a long way towards sanctifying your life before God. There's a, a second request in verse 4. David says, don't let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Don't let me feast on their delicacies. There seems to be a, a few steps in this process, at least two. David says, don't let my heart turn to any evil thing. And then secondly, don't let my heart or my person perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. That's, that's, the, that's the steps. Your heart is first turned toward this wicked thing, and then you're actively committing this act of disobedience or sin against God. It's the turning of the heart. And, and the, the seriousness of the turning of the heart is, is emphasized by the last part of verse 4 where David says, don't let me feast on their delicacies. He could have just said, don't let my heart turn to any evil, any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin, and then that be it. But he goes beyond that. Don't let me feast on their delicacies. It seems that David is implying here that the enticement is the fruit of the sin, even, even, even before the sin. That's, that's why we, we said this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. The reason we sin is because we want to. We see what the, the product, the, the outcome of that sin is, the fruit of that sin, and we want that. You may even know that there are negative consequences that come with that sin, but you suppress that. And you, and you know the, the promise that it holds for you, the fleeting pleasure that it can provide for you, and so you run to the sin. The first step in our sin against God is, is the turning of our heart. And David says, don't, don't let my heart be turned toward any evil thing. 
we have to ask of ourselves if and how our hearts are drawn to things that dishonor God. What are, what are the things that you want for? And, and, I, and I would warn you here against simply thinking negatively about this. In other words, don't just think about the things that you want for that are not godly. Because if all, you, if all you ever do is just get those things out, you're just going to leave a great big gaping hole in your life that you're going to eventually fill with something else. And without being very intentional about that, you're going to fill it, fill it with other bad things. It's kind of the principle of Jesus' parable where there's a man who has a spirit and he, by self-determination, gets the spirit out and begins to clean up his life. But there's nothing that replaces the presence of that spirit in his heart. So now his inner house is well kept and the demon goes away and he brings back seven demonic friends to come and inhabit that home. If, if you're not filling those holes in your life with things that are of God, something will ultimately and eventually fill those holes. So this, this is not about the thou shalt not do's exclusively. Those are realities for us that we have to reckon with and deal with in our own personal lives. But it's, it's more about treasuring Jesus in our heart so much that he supplants the evil desires. Y'all with me? Treasure Jesus so much that you want him above all else, and your repentance won't be painful. In fact, it'll be joyous. As you rid yourself of things that stand between you and the nearness of God in your life, if Jesus is your treasure, you will want for the things that honor Jesus. You will want for the things that give you a sensation of drawing near to God as God draws near to you. We, we could be well served by reflecting on the kind of things that do entice us. What, what does turn our heart? What are the things that we want most for? What are the things that we tend to fix our attention on? What are the things that pull us away? And they're not always exclusively bad things. Sometimes it's the good things in our life to just sort of clog things up. You can give your attention to good things so much that you neglect the greater thing. Y'all with me? I'm, I'm trying to be more deliberate about evaluating the benefit of activities for the boys. Because you can do so much that you don't have time to do anything else. And I'm not talking about neglecting to spend time with your family or doing family activities together. But we are living in a day and age where you, you can run yourself ragged chasing ball games and extracurricular activities and a thousand other things that are good. There's nothing wrong with those things. But too many times the good things overwhelm us and, and don't leave enough time for the greater involved in his mission. Now, there can be overlap between those. We, as we do the things we do together as a family, we want to be on mission as we go. But I think you understand the principle that I'm trying to communicate to you. What are the things that draw you in, that, that can monopolize your time and your life and ultimately pull you in a direction that is not Christward? The third um, request that David makes is in verse 5. This is an important one. David has already said, God, guard my mouth. He said in verse 4, guard my heart. Here he says in verse 5, provide me with accountability. Verse 5 says, let the righteous one strike me. It's an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It's all for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. If I was the brother responsible for placing the chapter and verse breaks in your Bibles, I would have put 
the break after let me not refuse it and before even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked but I didn't get to make that call the, the majority of verse 5 is wrapped up in this concept of having accountability in our life and when I was saved that was right in the height of a big push for accountability partnerships and so um, I had a friend who was my accountability partner and helped me greatly. And I want to is issue a little warning when it comes to accountability partnerships. One of the things that I observed years ago as a, a new and growing Christian was that sometimes the brothers involved in accountability ministry seem to be better motivated by the need to impress or convince their accountability partner than they were by the idea that this is what God would be pleased with my doing. So there's balance to be had there. But there can be no debating the need for accountability in our life. This is why being a part of the local church is so critically important. This is why people, when they begin to slide into sin, will part in saying, hey, tell me about how your walk with Christ is. But it's almost implied by our presence, isn't it? If you're doing ungodly things, you don't much want to be in the company of godly people. You'll just separate yourself. You're going to remove yourself because people pick up on things in your life, you know. And even when they don't, there's this feeling that there's an awareness of what I've done under the cloak of darkness. People now know what, what my secret is. And, and so you just want to remove yourself from that. The local church is critically important when it comes to providing accountability in our life. But there has to be greater depth than that when it comes to accountability. David says, let the righteous one strike me. The idea here is sort of like the proverb that talks about the faithful blows of a friend. There needs to be somebody in my life, David says, and this must have been a difficult thing for a king, right? There needs to be somebody in my life that has the freedom that I've authorized to say when it needs to be said, David, you're the man. To, to Spiritually speaking, to smack me. And remind me that I'm out of step. Now, don't go throwing blows within your accountability groups. If, we, if you come out of connect groups Sunday morning with bleeding noses and busted lips, we'll know that you've misinterpreted what David has said here. But there's something to be said for the, for the faithful blows of a trusted friend, isn't there? Somebody who, who has permission in your life to say, you are behaving in a way that is inappropriate. You are misrepresenting uh, the gospel of Christ in the decisions that you're making in your life. Now, I use the language of somebody having permission to do that in your life very intentionally because you can have godly people in your life and, and you, you can even have a godly accountability partner in your life. But if you have not mentally <laughs> given them permission to speak into your life, you're, you're just going to you're just going to harden against their counsel. There, there need to be people who have permission and feel the freedom to say hard things to you when hard things need to be said. It's discomforting. Um, I, I would rather be punched than have someone with godly compassion come to me and say, you've done wrong and this is how you've done wrong. And to have to eat that, I'm a man just like you. It's a discomforting thing, 
But the fact of the business is we all do wrong and we all get out of step and we miscalculate and we make mistakes and we even outright blatantly sin and there need to be people in our life who have the freedom to call a spade a spade and say, Wade, you're out of step in this area of your life. If you don't have those people, you men especially, because we think we do, we say we do, but then we carry ourselves in a way that's an automatic defense against anyone speaking to us that way. You need to be very careful that there are people in your life who provide accountability, and you need to be very careful that when the criticisms come, that you're prepared to receive them well. If, if you need examples of ways to not receive criticism, check your social media accounts. You need to hear it. Even, even, when, even when people criticize you in a way that seems overly harsh, in ministry, this is how it often comes, and a, a friend in ministry not so long ago comes to me and he says, here's what's happening in my ministry. He ultimately lost his job, and he was right. Some of the criticisms were way over the top. But even in the criticism that's over the top, there is a thread of truth that to neglect won't, won't do either party any good. You, when you hear a criticism, whether you like it or not, whether it's fair or not, over the top or well-balanced, you, you need to be sifting through that criticism, evaluating, finding where the truth in the criticism is, and beginning to make changes in your own personal life based on the criticism. It's going to hurt either way. You can go home and pull the covers over your head and deny the truth of the criticism if you want to. It's going to be painful either way. Embrace it or shirk it. It's going to hurt. So you might as well get some benefit out of that experience and pray through where the criticism is right and then begin to settle those issues in your life. David says, guard my mouth, guard my heart, and provide me with accountability in my life. The remainder of the psalm, verses 6 through 10, are about the fourth request. David says, vindicate me. You ever done the right thing and been roundly criticized for doing the right thing? It'll, it'll happen to you. Sometimes that's because we do the right thing the wrong way, but a lot of times you just do the right thing and you get hammered for it. I mean, you can get bloodied over, over doing the right thing. Um, I was anxious uh, to see what response would be like working through a, such a tricky and personal passage Sunday morning. Those kinds of issues in the world will, will get you criticized for standing on biblical standards. Any, any marriage and family issues always, almost always get you into some kind of trouble if you speak to what the Bible says. It, it, sometimes because we don't handle them the way that we should, and then sometimes because the truth just stings a little. It's, it's personal. It's unbearable to hear without retaliating in some way. There are going to be times in your life as a believer when doing the right thing is going to be a hard thing for you to do. When the earthly outcome would be better for you if you would do the wrong thing than if you do the right thing. If you tell the truth on your taxes, you will often pay more than you would if you would fudge. Although you will have to come see you in Atlanta if you fudge. That's where the federal prison is, if y'all didn't know. Th there are times when doing the right things are not beneficial. 
for young people, if you just sort of go with the crowd and follow the culture, it will be easier for you than it would be swimming upstream, honoring the command of God in your life. This is just the reality of where we are as followers of of Jesus. In verse 6, the Bible says, when their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words for their pleasing. In other words, time will vindicate me. And I would encourage you um, that, that when you're criticized, especially when you're wrongly accused, that time and truth are your friends. People, people run to gossip, and they'll embrace it even when they know in their heart of hearts it's not true because they're excited about knowing something that someone else might know. But over the course of time, your, your character will prove itself. Who, who, who you are will, will prove itself. As a, as a pastor, you can kind of, you can be in a position where people can make accusations against you just about the nature of your ministry. I had a lady one time, and I don't, I don't, I don't think she ever attended a service that I preached in 12 years of ministry in the area, but she was always critical of me for a thousand different things. And, and it was, I mean, it was always something. At one point it was, Brother Wade, he, he won't let so-and-so have the Lord's Supper, which I'm not sure how she would have known anything about that because she wasn't in the service. But it was the nitpicky little stuff like that. And over the course of time, what happens is the, the critics marginalize themselves because they're, they're always groaning, and then finally people just stop listening. But, but your consistency and faithfulness and your character ultimately will disprove the naysayers. Time and truth are your friends when you are wrongly accused. I know it hurts. I know it stings. I've been having this conversation with a few people within our church. But ultimately, your, your character speaks much louder than, than the false accusation of, the, of those who speak against you. There have been some times when I felt this way. When their rulers are thrown off the sides of a cliff, then they'll listen. They'll know who is right then. In other words, when God writes all this, when he vindicates me, and there are times when we're just vindicated by the way things, events in general unfold. In verse 7, the Bible says, "Is when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. What David is describing here is that he has been done treacherously. A common robber would just kill you and leave you in the ditch. But those who have come against David have killed him and scattered his bones at the mouth of the grave. Perhaps he's even suggesting they killed him, buried him, dug him up, and then scattered his bones. They, they have done him as dirty as he could possibly be done. And so David says in verse 8, In spite of my treatment, in spite of what's happened, my eyes look to you, Lord God. I seek refuge in you. Don't let me die. Protect me from the trap they've set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Isn't the Lord faithful to do this? There there are some things for which we will only be vindicated on the other side. But quite often, God is pleased to vindicate us, to prove us right in the here and now. My favorite example of this in the Bible is in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, there's a wicked dignitary named Haman who has it out for the Jewish people, and he really dislikes Mordecai, who's the uncle of Esther. Do you all remember this account? 
And Haman has a set of gallows built to hang Mordecai. And by the good providence of God, before the book is ended, Haman is swinging from the gallows he had built to kill Mordecai. Now, it doesn't always work out that way for us, does it? There are times when our good doing goes unnoticed and, and, and we're really never truly proven to have been in the right. But there will come a day, there will come a day when the justice of God will be served with perfection. Whenever, when every wrongly found not guilty verdict is overturned in the courts of heaven. Whenever every wrongly found guilty verdict is overturned in the courts of heaven, the perfect justice of God will be served. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves and where the real self-examination can enter in when it comes to our vindication is, is why it matters so much to us. If our interest is in vindicating our character for the sake of our gospel witness, then we're well motivated. But if it's just about personal pride, there probably needs to be some spiritual check there. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you read the books of First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament, Paul is often defending himself. But if you'll, if you'll take careful notice, Paul never defends himself for the sake of personal pride. His concern there is for defending the message of the gospel and the way that it's been mis misrepresented by their misrepresentation of Paul. Our concern is really not with our ego, even with our reputations or our social standing. Our concern is with enjoying a level of credibility with those that we encounter that we can be faithful, effective bearers of the good news of the gospel. I suspect that you can think of times when you have been wrongly criticized in spite of having done what is right. Here David says, when wrongly criticized, when attacked for doing the right thing, God, my hope is in you. Here, here's what I discovered about myself and, and about ministry and life in general about two years into ministry. The praise of people is very addictive. I, I was saved and called to ministry in a small rural church where the people were so encouraging. I mean, I couldn't do anything in that church without being swarmed at the end of a service with people telling me what a fantastic human being I was. And it was helpful to me. It was, it was a good thing. But I, I left there and went to serve on the staff of a church as a student pastor, and expectations change when you get paid to do the things that you do in a church. You know what I mean? And that constant praise wasn't there. It was, it was troubling for me. And, and I, just want to, I just want to remind you, if you've not considered lately, how addictive the attaboys can be and how important it is that we check our hearts to ensure that we do our service not as unto man but as unto God. If you anchor your joy there, then when the false accusations come, there's, there's a foundation to stand on. There's, there's hope. Rather than finding ourselves in a place of despair, our eyes look to God. We labor toward an end at which he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
in spite of what conclusions might be reached in the here and now. David says, guard my mouth, guard my heart, put some godly people in my life to hold me accountable, to be of help to me along the way. And then as I do what you've called me to do, God, and the accusations come and the opposition happens, vindicate me in the end, whether it be in the here and now by some turn of events or in the there and then when you receive me gladly by the blood of Jesus. God be at work in my life.